are thankful for the fact that your mercies are new every morning, that we have the privilege of getting up and getting into your word and looking at who you are, how you work in your son, the blessings that we have in your son. We give you praise for those, that your spirit is applying those blessings to us even presently as we look at your word. We pray this morning that your son would be exalted among us, that your word would be well understood, that we would have a great time um, discussing the ordinances that your son has given to the church, that you would be exalted in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gentlemen. Um, it, this morning, as we're looking, we're continuing what we did last week when we started on the sacraments last week. Last week we started with Last week we started with looking at um, what are called the sacraments or ordinances of the church. There's some chairs down here, Sean. Um, what are called the sacraments or ordinances of the church. Now, I'm going to talk about that word sacrament in a minute because that word sacrament for some is like, oh, I hate that word. Isn't that Catholic? Okay, so we'll deal with that a little bit. Um, if you're more comfortable with the word ordinance, that's fine. Um, I, we're just going to deal with... there's these two ordinances or sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last week we dealt with baptism, what it means, in other words, what is baptism about, and uh, this week what we're going to jump into is sort of finishing the talk on baptism and beginning, if not finishing, the discussion of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you want more on the Lord's Supper, now this, this sounds backwards, I know, because this is supposed to be deeper, and I'm going to tell you something that sounds backwards. If you want more on the Lord's Supper... I'm about to do a three-part sermon series on it starting Sunday. So you go, well, your Sunday services are going to be deeper than your deeper class. Um, yes. They, uh, um, they're going to be different. And so uh, what I'm doing there is I'm preaching in Luke. Uh, I've been preaching the book of Luke, and I'm in Luke 22, 14 through 20. And um, this is where, the, where Jesus launches the new covenant. Um, in a sense, and starts to say, this is the new covenant of my blood. And because that is such a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal event in the history of redemption, in the history of the church, um, with such huge implications, I need to spend time on that. Um, when, when Jesus takes them together at Passover and announces a new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that's about as monumental as, as an event that happens in redemptive history aside from the culmination of all that, which is the, which is the cross and resurrection and, and then return of Christ. You guys, you guys follow me on that? And so I, I intend to spend some time on that. So if you want more, once we get into the Lord's Supper, and you go, man, I would like to learn more about that, then I have two things to tell you on that. One, I'll preach three sermons on it. You don't go to Sodom and Grace. We put them online, so you're welcome to, to listen there. Um, and then two, there's this book, the Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace More Than a Memory um, by Richard Barcellos. It's not real long, but it's fairly technical. Um, it's excellent. This is an excellent book. If you want a technical study of this doctrine, I can't recommend this book enough. And you say, it's technical, but it's really short. That's right, which I also appreciate. <laughs> most of what I read anymore um, that comes out in popular type books, it should have been an essay. You know what I'm talking about? You read it and you go, why didn't you just write an essay? Why did you write a whole book? 
Like, I got done with chapter one, and chapter two through ten are just repeats of chapter one. And then you publish another book, and you say the same thing you said in chapter one in the last book. And then 30 books later, I think I just needed to read the one essay you wrote in chapter one of your first book. Because <laughs> I feel like I've read this 3,000 times now, right? So, okay. Um, and this book is incredibly helpful because it's concise and well done. And, um, and frankly... You don't feel like you should have just read one chapter. You feel like you should have read the whole book. He actually leaves you feeling pretty satisfied and at the same time wanting more. It's like, oh, I got done with a book on a topic and I wanted more, not less. Right? Um, so I, I encourage you, if you really want to dive in, to pick this up. Now, he does interact with the Greek language in here, but he translates it. So if you're like, oh, I don't understand that at all. I, I don't read Greek. That's fine. He, he does translate it and give it English explanations. Okay, so, um, but you have to sort of deal with that, which I, I, I found it to be a pretty helpful book. All right. Um, <coughs> with that said, let, let's talk about baptism with regard to the, the proper subject. So last week I jumped into, here's what baptism is. Here's what it means. Now today what I want to do is start off with who are the proper subjects of baptism and what's the mode? See, there are questions about baptism, right? First, what is it? Then, who receives it? And then, how do we administer it? You guys follow me on that? <clears throat> so, what is baptism? Who receives baptism? And how do we administer baptism? I'm going to deal with just the last two, which is who receives it and how do we administer it? And I'm going to try to deal with those briefly, to which you, you ought to think to yourself, that sounds impossible. Because... People argue all the time about which question. When it comes to baptism, how many people argue about what baptism is in evangelical circles? I'm not talking about. I, and I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism. We'll argue with them about what baptism actually even is. Okay, but in evangelical circles, how many people really argue over what baptism is? You think about Presbyterians and Baptists when those theologians who get the full meaning of baptism. Not, 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 not those guys who don't understand that baptism is, is more than just a sign of my faith. In fact, that's the smallest piece of what baptism is. Okay? It's first a sign of God's promises and God's accomplished work in Christ being applied to you. And then it's also a sign of your repentance of faith. You follow me on that? So all those things play in. <clears throat> but... Let's say they, when a Baptist and a Presbyterian get together, who are good theologians, do you think they argue over that, those issues, what it means? No, not generally. What do you think they argue over? Who receives it? Is it okay to sprinkle? Um, or, or must you immerse? Right? They argue over those two topics. I'm going to deal with those in shorter order because, frankly, we could do a whole class on those topics because... Um, there is there's no shortage of a spilling of ink over those issues, um, or frankly, blood. So, uh, true story. Luther actually told, told the Anabaptists if they liked the water so much, we'll just hold them under longer. It's <laughs> true. All right. Uh, sorry to say. It. Okay. Uh, uh, we, we, the reformers had a lot going for them, but they were still men. Okay. <laughs> the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 
makes this statement when it talks about the proper subjects of baptism. Those who actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects for the ordinance. All right? So when you get to the ordinance of baptism, the Baptists, historically, and there's two, well, really there are three strains of Baptists. Are you guys familiar with this historically? Okay, so there's the Anabaptist movement. How many of you guys have heard of that? Anabaptist means the rebaptizers. Okay? Um, the Anabaptist movement started in what was called the Radical Reformation. <coughs> roughly the, um, not too long, even during the lifetime of guys like Luther and Calvin, um, the Anabaptists got started. Now, the Anabaptists have all kinds of problems. They have their own confessions. They did not like the Protestants. They had no interest in being involved with the Protestants. They were their own group. Um, what came out of them were the Mennonites, the Mennonite Brethren, the Church of the Brethren, some Baptist churches, okay, etc. came out of the Anabaptist movement. That's one group. They were a continental group. You guys know what I mean by when I say continental? What, what, anybody, who, who knows what I mean by that? European. European, thank you. They're, by European, but I'm talking about the European continent as opposed to the British Islands. You follow me on that? Okay, so they were a continental Baptist kind of group. Anabaptists, all right? They do a lot of things differently than the what you might see as traditional Baptist groups, all right? You then had Baptists in London or England. Now, the London Baptists have, are, are of two types. They did not, just so we know, they did not like the Anabaptists. They considered themselves Protestants. The Anabaptists did not. You guys follow me on that? The Anabaptists denied justification by faith alone. They denied that the scripture alone is our authority. They denied, even in the case of Meadow Simons and the Mennonite Brethren, that Jesus had a human human flesh. Okay, They denied all those things. Now, the current Mennonite Brethren you run into would not generally deny those things, but that was historically their past. Okay, They denied penal substitutionary atonement, those sorts of things. But, okay, Now, you would not find that in contemporary... You went to the bridge, they would not deny those things. You guys follow me on that? Okay, That's historically... All right, 500 years almost has passed, so we can all get over it, okay? So, <laughs> so what happened with the English Baptists, or the non-continental Baptists, they would, they would actually say, and, and they start really with what we call the particular Baptists, they would actually say, we are not Anabaptists. We're wrongly called Anabaptists. Please don't call us Anabaptists. They hated that, that label, okay? Um, they actually said... We're just like the Presbyterians, except we don't put water on our babies. You follow me on that? All right? That's essentially the main breaking point. They had a break over um, church government as well, but, but that, and that was significant, but that, there were people who agreed with them that actually baptized infants that agreed with the Baptists on the church government issue. Guys like John Owen, etc., what you'd call the Congregationalists, who had the, what's called the Savoy Declaration. So the Westminster Confession of Faith coming out of England, Presbyterian. You had the Savoy Declaration, Congregationalist. Then you had the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Baptist. You guys follow me on that? All those documents are almost identical, except they have differences on church government and baptism. Okay. Uh, now, the Baptists were the particular Baptists, and then there was another group that came in London called the General Baptists. You know what the difference was? Particular Baptists believed in particular satisfaction that Jesus paid for the sins of everyone who would ever believe only. Okay? 
The general Baptists believe that Jesus paid for the sins of everyone on the planet, whether they believed or not. In other words, one group was particular, i.e. Calvinistic Baptists. The other group was non-Calvinistic Baptists. Do you follow me on that? Okay. The Calvinistic Baptists came to America, had what we call, or the particular Baptists came to America, and were called the Philadelphia Confession, and they ended up going down and, and starting what's called the Southern Baptist Convention, was started by Calvinistic particular Baptists. The American Baptists were generally started by the General Baptists in the North. You guys, you guys follow me so far? Okay. At, over time, you get all these splinter groups, and you add what's called the Baptist General Conference. What do you think that's a hat tip toward? General Baptist coming out of England. You guys follow me on that? Mm -hmm. Although the, the Baptist General Conference, the Southern Baptist Convention, the American Baptists, the Conservative Baptist Association, all are the Independent Fundamentalist Baptists, um, the <coughs> GARB, you know, General Assembly of uh, Rebellious Baptists. No, they're actually regular <laughs> Baptists. Right? If you go down, if you go down the list, the American Reformed Baptist Churches of America, ARBCA. I mean, we could just go on and on about all the Baptist splinter groups from there, okay? And most of these groups are now mutts of some kind. In other words, none of them are purely what they were when they started, okay? So that you have John Piper in the Baptist General Conference as one of the most well-known Calvinistic Baptists around, but he's in a historically Arminian denomination. And then you have um, Rick Warren, a pretty well-known likely Arminian, who is a Southern Baptist. Can I, you guys follow me on that? Okay, all right. So there's, there's, a, there's a mix there that just sort of everything in America is a melting pot and has become a mutt. Okay, everything has become a mutt. So it's hard to even know what a denomination really holds to any longer. Um, it's, it's hard to pick a church based on denomination. Because you go around to all the churches in that denomination, you go, man, in this city, the churches in this denomination are horrible, right? And then you go to another city and go, man, the churches in this denomination in this city are amazing. And, and it's really tough to pick on that because of the melting pot effect of America. It's hard to find consistency. So what I want you to understand here is that Baptists historically, whether of any of those three strains of Baptists or any Baptistic churches whether you call them non-denominational or independent churches that only baptize believers, at the end of the day, they're following the tradition of the Baptists. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Whether, you, whether they call themselves Baptist churches or not, if they only baptize believers from a historical standpoint, they are Baptist churches. Does that make sense? Okay. So if, if you're in a church that only baptizes believers, historically you're in a Baptist church. You are a historical anomaly, incidentally. In other words, in the last 2,000 years, you were in the vast minority. In America, you're in the vast majority. Because America is a Baptist nation, if you will. Uh, because Bapti Baptists reward industry. And Presbyterians and Reform reward scholarship. Incidentally, just so you know. So... Guys who are really scholarly feel more comfortable around Presbyterian and Reformed guys. Guys who are really good at building things. I don't mean just buildings, but just industry. You guys know what I'm talking about? Movements, networks, etc. They feel more comfortable around Baptist circles. Because one group rewards industry, one group rewards 
um, scholarship. What do you think America as a culture rewards? Industry. Industry, right? And as a result, we are a pretty much social... We're pretty much a Baptist nation. You guys follow me on that? We're pretty much a Baptist nation. That would not be true historically in the church that most people are Baptist. Most people aren't, but in America they are. Okay? Um, so the Baptists believe that the symbol of baptism, right, the water being put on somebody, should not be administered before the thing that's being symbolized, which is, what's the thing symbolized? Regeneration, right? So you've got a new heart, faith, union with Christ. You follow me on that? Okay. They believe that the symbol, the water, should not be administered before the thing symbolized is the actual possession of the subject of baptism. You guys follow me on that? So you have the symbol, the water, and the thing symbolized, which is the new covenant, union with Christ, faith, etc. You follow me on that? Okay. Um, they said those two things should never be separated. The person must have the thing symbolized or should have the thing, thing symbolized or at least is professing to have the thing symbolized before we give them the symbol. Or the sign. You guys follow me on that? That's that is the Baptist argument. The Presbyterian argument is we should give the symbol or the sign to the person who believes and their children. Okay, well I'll get to that in a minute. That's I'll give you their logic in a minute. So they'd say to the person who believes and their children, and it's okay that the children they would actually say Presbyterians actually. The children don't have the thing symbolized yet. We know that. But we still give them the symbol, and we tell them later on, if they believe the promise that's contained in the symbol, then they will get the thing symbolized. You follow me on that? So we'll get to that in a minute. All right. That's the primary difference between Baptists and Presbyterians. Between Baptists and what we would call the kind of paedo-Baptists that we, would, we might run around with. Okay? <coughs> Guys who believe that there's a difference between the, the symbol and the thing symbolized. Baptists think it should only, the symbol should only be given to those who have the thing symbolized or he's professing to. And Presbyterians say, no, we can give it to them and their children. Okay, so we have a much stronger difference on baptism, though, with other groups. So if you moved outside the Presbyterian and Reformed groups, and you move into what we would call, like, for example, the sacramentalist groups. Who do I mean? Anglicans. Lutherans, and Roman Catholics. They are sacramentalists. They believe that they believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. Would the Orthodox Church be in there too? Greek Orthodox? Yeah, they would be, Jim. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm just talking mostly about Western traditions. But yeah, if you go into the East, the Eastern Orthodox would definitely be there. So, baptismal regeneration. What does that word mean? That set of words, that term. Baptismal regeneration. Anybody know? Because arguably the largest body of, of professing Christians in the world believe in baptismal <laughs> regeneration. They're, they're not the only ones, incidentally. So does the Church of Christ, etc. But they're, I, I, for, for various reasons, I don't put them in the, in the Orthodox Christian camp. Yeah, I was raised in the South and, and uh, uh, belonged to the Church of Christ. And... Um, I had to be baptized as soon as I expressed interest because I had to be saved. And that was the only way that I could, my salvation was assured. So they believe that 
the water, the back, the act of baptism actually brings, and they wouldn't say it's necessarily the stuff of the water, but the act of baptism actually brings regeneration or new birth. If you want to be born again, if you want to be saved, you got to go into the water. You follow me on that? It's a catalyst. It's some kind of a, they're sacramental. In other words, they believe that, that this thing has its own operative or effectual power, this sacrament. You guys follow me on that? Okay. They would often call it an act of obedience. So if you're not willing to submit to the act of obedience of baptism, then you're disobedient. And That's true with, with Church of Christ. Yeah. If you go to sacramentalists, though, like the Lutherans, the Roman Catholics, and the Anglicans, they're giving it to babies. They're clearly not giving them to them as an act of obedience. They're giving it to babies, and they're saying, these babies are regenerate. They believe in baptismal regeneration. And you say, how can Luther believe in baptismal regeneration since Luther believed in justification by faith alone, right? Okay, How could that be? Because Luther actually argued um, that when you baptize a child, God gives them the seed of faith to believe, so that they, they, they actually are justified through believing. Or through faith. Um, I, I think Luther's all wet on that topic, but that was that was his that was his argument. Um, that pun was intended. Yeah, I'm glad some of you noticed. All right. Sometimes I throw those out there and they just keep going, and I'm just like, well, all right. So, but baptismal regeneration. And now notice this, if you believe in baptismal regeneration, it logically and ethically requires infant baptism. Logically and ethically requires infant baptism. Because if baptism can regenerate, and you don't give it to infants, you're a horrible person. Think of that. You, you guys follow me on that? Why would you not do it? Unless you're a monster, right? Okay? Alright, so... Uh, those are the sacramentalists. Now they they would um, the Catholics will take it a step further and they'll talk about it being ex, ex opere operato. What do I mean by that? So Luther would say, well, the seed of faith is there, and salvation or justification comes by faith alone, and so God gives this seed of faith to infants. Until point to John the Baptist or people like this who seem to be who seem to be in, or believers even in the womb, right? They so, see it's possible, okay, but that's pretty exceptional. Luther, so, you know, all right, um, but the Catholics will go a step further and say, no, 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 you, you don't have to have the seed of faith there. They say the sacraments work ex opere operato. What does that mean? That's, that's a, a, it means a work worked. In other words, the work works just because it's done. It's in and of itself effective. The person doesn't have to believe. I was, uh, I was baptized very shortly after I was born on the same day because I almost died and my parents are Catholic. That's right. Because and the thing works just because it does. You guys follow me on that? All right. That's different than, well, yes, it brings regeneration, but God also gives you the seed of faith. And Luther would actually say if you're not believing as an adult, then, then you've, he actually had to push into, even though he was a huge proponent of predestination and election, you end up pushing into sort of the possibility of losing your salvation because what, what do I do now with these babies who grew up and don't believe if I say that they were regenerated and got the seed of faith? You follow me on that? Okay. So there became problems for Luther. 
All right. You, cut, the, cut the dude some slack, right? In the sense that at the time, he was a Roman Catholic priest coming out of Roman Catholicism. And uh, it's easy for us to all look back and go, what were you thinking? But he was pretty alone early on, okay? So let's just remember that, all right? But here, here we go, anti-sacramentalists. This is why some people are com uncomfortable with the word sacrament. Because when they hear the word sacrament, they think what, what the Roman Catholics mean, right? That it's by itself got its own power. You guys follow me on that? Okay? So, you, what, if you will, the anti-sacramentalists. -sacramental, here would be the difference. You guys ever ism, the word ism? The little ending ism always makes something bad. So mo being modern is good. Modernism is bad. You guys, you guys follow me on that? Okay. Right? Natural is good. Things that are natural are good. Naturalism is a commitment to the fact there's nothing but the natural. It's bad. You guys understand what I'm saying there? Okay. Sacrament, good. Sacramentalism, bad. You understand the distinction there? Okay. That's, that's what it, All right. So the anti-sacramentalists, or those guys who are against sacramentalism, um, they didn't believe in baptismal regeneration. That would include the Reformed, both Presbyterian and Reformed. What's the difference? Reformed who are continental, okay, whether it be French, German, the Netherlands, etc., right, Dutch, etc., those guys were what you call Reformed churches. And if you went to the British islands or the non-continental, the British Reformed, they were called Presbyterians. You ready for that? So you could go to a Reformed church, and that's usually going to be German or Dutch or Swiss or French. You follow me on that? Or you can go to a Presbyterian church, and that's going to be Scottish or English. Otherwise, they believe the same stuff, but ethnically they're from different areas. That's the difference. Okay? So they use some different terms, but essentially everything's the same. You guys follow me on that? So whether you go to a Presbyterian or a Reformed <coughs> church, they are anti-sacramentalists. They do not believe in baptismal regeneration. They do not baptize their <coughs> infants because they think that it saves them. Okay? You guys follow me on that? That it regenerates them. They don't do it for that reason. All right? Um, then you also have... Baptists are anti-sacramentalists, obviously. Okay, of any strain, right? The three I mentioned, particular, general, or Anabaptist, they're all anti-sacramentalists. They do not believe the water has any saving property to it. Okay, you guys follow me on that? Or the, the sacrament itself, all right? I mean, obviously, nobody really believes the water does. They would say, in the Roman Catholic situation, or the Luke situation, is when the pastor <coughs> slash priest prays, or the Anglican situation, he prays and he takes a common thing and sets it apart for holy use and then it has this power on its own. You follow me on that? We agree that you set apart a common thing for holy use, we just don't agree that it has a power in and of itself. You can follow me on that so far? Okay. Alright. So why do Presbyterians who deny baptismal regeneration, they deny that it actually regenerates or saves anybody, why do they still put water on their babies? Is that a good question? Presbyterian and Reformed people, they don't believe it saves their babies. They don't believe it gives them regeneration. Okay? They don't believe it guarantees they'll be believers or that they'll have faith or anything else. 
So get that out of your mind. When you go and watch one of them do infant baptism, you need to limit what they believe it means. They don't believe it means any of that stuff. Okay? That's a big difference between them and Catholics, isn't it? Huge difference. All right? Um, so why do they do it? Because of a covenant. Okay? Because God works in families. That's what they believe. So, so let me... Let me give you the logic. You ready? I'm going to give you three points of logic. Okay? Here are the three movements. The covenant of grace. That is the covenant that God has promised in Genesis 3.15. Right? You follow me on that? That he will come and save mankind through the seed of the woman. Right? Do you understand? That covenant of grace belongs not only to believers, but also to their children. That's their first argument. Now, how, why do they argue that? They argue that it belongs not only to believers, but also their children. Because, first of all, you have the seed principle in that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Okay? Second, because it wasn't just Noah who got on the ark. Who else got on the ark? Noah's family. Third, because it wasn't just Abraham who believed and then it was credited to him as righteousness and therefore was circumcised. But what was Abraham to do then? Circumcise his babies. Right? Circumcision was a sign of Abraham's faith, yet Abraham was to apply it to his children. God covenanted with Abraham, yet God said, I'm not only coming with you, but with your children. Are you guys following this so far? Come to Moses, follow the same thing. Come to David, follow the same thing. Now, you get to uh, Acts chapter 2. And the Presbyterians, after he says, repent and be baptized, all of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the next thing we read is, this promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God calls. Oh, us and our children, Genesis 17, to you and your children, you follow this? So they say, well, God always covenants with, graciously covenants with this believing man and his family. And then they'll go to Acts and they'll say, look it, every time you see baptisms in Acts, the whole households are baptized. And that completely lines up with what we're saying about what happened in the Old Testament. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Abraham got circumcised and what did he do? He circumcised his whole household. The Philippian jailer believes and gets baptized, and so does his whole household. Cornelius believes, gets baptized, so does his whole household. You guys follow me on that? So they say, <clears throat> the covenant of grace belongs not only to believers, but to their children. The covenant sign in the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, was circumcision. Right? You guys all agree on that? Okay? Here's what it was, circumcision. And it was applied to new converts, and it was given to their infant children. Okay? The covenant sign in the New Testament is baptism. Right? It's not circumcision, it's baptism. And if you go to Colossians 11 through 12, it says you've been circumcised. With what? The circumcision of Christ when you were baptized. They say, oh look, circumcision and baptism are the same. Old covenant sign, new covenant sign. Given to believers and their children ought to be given to believers and their children. That's their argument. That's their logic. You follow it? Now they'd go and say, Abraham believed and was circumcised, 
Abraham was saved. Abraham's children were circumcised. Ishmael wasn't saved. Isaac was. Jake, Jacob was saved. Esau wasn't. You guys follow me on that? Go down the thing. They will argue that just because they received the sign doesn't mean they were circumcised. It means they're part of the covenant community. It means that God's making promises to them, both to either to bless them or curse them based upon whether or not they believe the covenant promises. That's, that's, that's how they believe. And then they're going to go on and say, and you Baptists believe the same thing. No, we don't. Yes, you do. Why do you say that? Well, when you get together with your children, do you pray to our God or to mom and dad's God? Why do you pray to our God if they're not believers yet? Do you read the Bible and sing songs with them? Do you let them pray? Do you get together with adult unbelievers and say, let's pray to our God together? No, so why do you treat your children differently than you treat adult unbelievers? That's the questions they're going to ask. Why does your church have Sunday school? And why does your church value the children? You guys follow me on that? And they're going to ask all those questions. Why do you catechize them? Why do you disciple unbelievers in that strict sense in which you do? Okay, And they're going to ask all these questions and say, you act just like Presbyterians. Right? Why do you do baby dedications? The Bible doesn't anywhere command baby dedications. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Why do you feel compelled to bring your baby forward to be dedicated? For the same reason you do that, it's the same reason we baptize them. Because we believe they're specially set apart to the Lord in a believing family. We, we baptize them for that reason. That's their logic. I actually had a Presbyterian minister in town who's a good friend of mine. When I announced we were doing baby dedications, he actually... He actually emailed me and said, just add water and dive into the PCA, the Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he told me. <laughs> that was a great, yeah, it was Randy. That's Randy Martin, he's the Bible chair, uh, department of the Bible, uh, the Bible department chair at, at Bakersfield Christian High School. And he, he uh, pastors of the Presbyterian Church. You guys understand their logic? Okay. <clears throat> Just add water and dive into the PCA. <laughs> he knows in every other way I want to be in the PCA because I like scholarship, right? <laughs> all right. But, all right. So, you, you, guys, you guys follow their logic? It's not unconvincing, is it? It's got some force to it, right? Okay? Um, and I'm giving you just a quick overview of it. All right? A very quick overview of it. I want you to understand that essentially what we call baby dedications, they add water and call it infant baptism. Their baby dedications are wet. <laughs> they then do a thing called confirmation later in life where they catechize their children and have them stand before the church and can profess faith in Christ. And when they have them profess faith in Christ, then they're welcome to communion after they're confirmed. They're called communicant members of the church. So they have two kinds of members. The children, they call non-communicated members. In other words, non-communicant members, they're not welcome to communion because while they've been baptized, they have not demonstrated faith in Christ yet and until they've been catechized and professed faith before the congregation, we don't let them take communion. So they have communicant members, those who can take communion, and non-communicant members, those who can't take communion. And when they get older, they say, okay, they profess faith, they do that for the church, now they're welcome to communion. Now... What's interesting is they would actually 
tell you that, that uh, or, <coughs> well, let me put it this way. Alistair Begg, who is a Baptist, has actually said that essentially what Presbyterians and Baptists have different is the when they apply water. So, Presbyterians have wet baby dedications and dry baptisms. That's what he says, right? In other words, they have their people stand up in front and profess faith when they get older, and there's no water. But when they're babies and they do dedications, they apply water. And, and that's, a, the, that's the essential difference between a Presbyterian and a Baptist on this issue. You guys understand that? All right. Why do, babe, why do Baptists deny pedo-baptism, infant baptism, right? Because Baptists, you understand, the particular Baptist, the kind of Baptist I am, come out of this group of Presbyterians. London Baptist Confession of Faith is just the Westminster Confession of Faith rehashed for Baptists. That's all it is. Okay? So why do they deny pedo-baptism? I, I don't want to go into their whole argument. Um, there's lots of arguments. But I'll give you three major issues. One, there's new, no New Testament command to baptize your children. None. Say there is a there isn't command to Abraham to circumcise his children. But there is no New Testament command to baptize your children. Two, there's no New Testament example of children being baptized. The Presbyterians go, yes there is, household baptisms. There were probably infants there. Okay, but in almost every case except one, the household of Stephanus, we don't know whether their infants were there or not. In every other case, it says that the other members of the household believed. And even most of the time spoke in tongues. That would be interesting for an infant, okay? So you guys follow me on that? It's a little <laughs> difficult. But there, there are, there's at least one or two cases where we don't know that the members of the household, it doesn't say whether the members of the household all believed or not, okay? And there is some textual issue in the Greek, an argument over whether or not the household rejoices because the Philippian jailer believes, or the household rejoices because they all believe. And in fact, the, 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 the force of the Greek grammar almost seems to point us toward the fact that the household all rejoices and is baptized because the Philippian jailer believes. And so that is a difficulty that has to be worked through textually. So there's some arguments about that. You guys follow me? But the point is, there's no New Testament example, clear New Testament example, of infants being baptized. You understand? Okay? And then finally, every time you find baptism in the New Testament, repentance and faith, and or faith, are connected there. Those are the main three things. Okay? Now there are other arguments about discontinuity between covenants and trying to, and all, all these kinds of things I don't have time to get into, but that's the main Baptist reason for moving away from that. They're saying, we're in a new covenant, each covenant has the right to establish its own conditions and ceremonies, etc. You guys follow me on that? And the new covenant never ever commands the baptism of infants, the new covenant never ever gives us a clear example of the baptism of infants in the New Testament, and every time Baptism happens in the New Testament. Repentance and faith are generally commanded or present time. That's why Baptists push away from that. Now the Presbyterians have their whole set of arguments against that. Okay, And that's fine. We're not going to get into that today and try to unravel that debate today. Right? If you ever want to have that sort of a debate, just let me know. I'll bring Randy Martin in here, and we'll just go at it. Okay, but, um, but And that's fine, but we're not going to... 
I'm not going to unravel it all today. All right? You guys got me? Okay? Yeah. Any questions about that? All right. The outward elements. The outward elements. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water. Okay? In which a person to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a naming ceremony. You're named. You you receive a new name. You belong now to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, immersion, the dipping of the person in water, is necessary for the due administration of the ordinance. That's what the Baptists argue that you immerse them in water. Now they they do make an exception for those who are incapable of being fully immersed due to various circumstances. You're in the hospital. You're dying. You come to Christ. We can't take you out to a tank and fully immerse you. Okay? <laughs> it isn't going to happen. So they would make an exception that we, this guy says, I'd like to be baptized. Great. We can baptize you there in the hospital bed, generally by pouring or sprinkling. We had a guy in our church we had to pour. His name's Dale. Dale became a Christian in his late 80s. Dale is in his early 90s when we baptized him. That's rare. But Dale is not able to... Um, Get up and down, he has to be wheelchaired around. So we brought him up on the stage, and we had to pour water on him. I couldn't pick him up and dunk him in our horse trough, okay? You guys follow me on that? All right. So there, there that's what we use, the horse trough. That's all we got to do baptisms, all right? This is, this is old school right here, okay? Um, and, and so, so we, we, we couldn't immerse him that way, and so we poured you follow me on that? And that's acceptable. Five gallons. Yeah, yeah. We, I don't know. We poured a big cup of water. Okay. All right. So, what, why, why, why does, why do I think the normative understanding of the word baptizo in the Greek is to immerse? That's what it normally means. It means to immerse. Most examples in the New Testament are of immersion. Most. Okay. So what happens with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? What do they do? They go down into the river. Most likely, he's immersing him there. John the Baptist, where are they? He's there out in a river. Most likely, he's immersing them there. Okay, you guys follow me on that? Yes, sir. Isn't that also coincidental to the fact that they're not going to have giant vessels of water? They don't have running water. They can't get water any place. The only substantial source of any body of water is going to be a river. They don't have a bathtub that they can fill up. Um, they don't have, that's not common. They're not going to have any it's of the definitely not common. other than a river. The Roman Empire did have some running water, actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's not, it's not common for them. Rivers are generally what they would have to use. And, and anybody that did have a body of water large enough to immerse would much like, most right. likely be a very wealthy person. Generally, the, 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 door. there are difficulties though with arguing that they always did full immersion. For example, when the three thousand men are saved in Jerusalem, which means that doesn't include women and or older children. If you're a Baptist, younger children. If you're a Baptist, right? Okay, you follow me? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. How many thousands of people are saved at Pentecost? They're in Jerusalem. Where's the river? How do they baptize them all? Okay, They didn't dunk them all in a river, likely. So, it's possible they poured water on them or sprinkled. Yes, sir? They, do, they did excavate baptisms outside the city walls 
in Jerusalem. Yeah. Prior to Christ, they actually have them. You can go there now and mm -hmm. large bathing pools. Ritual pools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there were there were things there. There's water, and the question is whether they went outside the city, and we just don't have all of these details. The Pentecost, they go outside the city and do this. We don't know. Okay. Um, so we just have to be careful not to overspeak. There are a few times in the New Testament where baptism, that word is referring to pouring or, or sprinkling. Actually refers to either one of those two, pouring or sprinkling. In Hebrews, specifically, there's a reference to sprinkling of blood. That's that word. Okay. Uh, Sean? Yeah, I wanted to ask a question. Um, say, for example, you have someone or a friend that's at like a heretical church and got baptized by a heretical pastor and like they truly believe in their heart um, um, once they're baptized is that is is that okay or I mean or that they believe that's yeah. great or that <laughs> well, I mean I mean in the sense like do they have to be rebaptized if they go let's say if they go to a church that's actually biblical oh what well, I, I it's, it's is the is the baptism valid yeah it's it, it, it would depend on what you mean by heretical um, not well, not preaching the gospel, not denying the Trinity. Yeah, things like that. Okay, yeah, what we would not accept that as valid baptism. Okay, sovereign grace. Okay, um, most historic churches would not accept that as valid baptism. Okay, so it would depend on the heresy, though. Um, and it, it, I don't have time to get into and run up all that. Okay, because the heresy is the question. There's there's a difference between a formal heretic and a material heretic. And, and uh, I want to be careful in heresy and heterodoxy and how you splice all that out. A formal heretic is somebody who has been, who has, is holding to a heresy that has been formally declared heresy by the church. A uh, material heretic is somebody who has, or that person that has actually themselves been in a judicial, theological judiciary, if you will, declaring them a formal heretic. A material heretic is someone who, in substance, or to, as to material, is holding to that same heresy but has not been tried. Do you guys follow me on that and declare yeah. it as such? But wouldn't that be uh, make the baptism dependent upon the pastor? Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So the question is, uh, yeah, it's it's too much for me to unwind this yeah, morning. Okay. I'm sorry, <laughs> but but not necessarily, Jim. That's that that is a good question. Any other questions you have about baptism that aren't such big issues? <laughs> you want to open a big issue? I can I can uh, recommend some books for you. But any others? All right. So here's the point. Normatively, immersion is how baptism seems to be the pattern. Okay. Normatively, baptism was immersion. There are some except possible exceptions to that. So I don't want to push that so hard that there's never any exceptions allowed. Okay, you guys follow me on that? That's just what it normally was. All right, um, the Lord's Supper. I don't want to um, read the entire confession on it. I do want to look, though, just at the London Baptist, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. They, they give an, a statement at, in chapter 14 um, under the, the, what they would call the, the statement of saving of faith. Actually, what is saving faith? They give an interesting statement about baptism, and that's all I want to look at. I want you to hear this. It's chapter 1, I'm sorry, it's chapter 14 and paragraph 1 um, of Saving Faith. Now, now, listen to what they say, because they all of a sudden bring up baptism in the Lord's Supper, okay? 
I want you to hear this. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Okay, you hear that? So the Spirit of Christ gives people faith. It's their first argument, all right? And is ordinarily wrought or worked, brought about by the ministry of the Word. Now, how does the Spirit bring faith to the hearts of people? Through the preaching of the Word. You follow me on that? Okay, that's pretty simple and straightforward. <coughs> by which also, now listen to this, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. I want you to hear what they're saying. Prayer, teaching of the word, administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, increases and strengthens faith. You hear that? They're not saying that's where you get faith. They're saying faith is worked ordinarily by the Spirit through the preaching of the word. They're saying that baptism, the Lord's Supper, etc., nourishes or strengthens faith. You guys follow me on that? Okay? All right. The reason I say that is because it's important as we get into the discussion of what is the Lord's Supper. What is communion? All right? Um, there are three, well, there are four really schools of thought. I'll just say four schools of thought. The first school of thought is what comes from Roman Catholicism with regard to the Lord's Supper. They will use the terms transubstantiation or consubstantiation. Those are both Roman Catholic terms. People say, well, the Lutherans believe in consubstantiation. No, they don't. All right? They are wrongly accused of believing in consubstantiation. They, they expressly reject consubstantiation. Okay. The first thing you need to know it is bad historical theology to accuse them of that. Nowhere will you find in sound Lutheran documents that argument. Yes, sir? Consubstantiation is with the substance as opposed to the transformation of the substance. So we'll, I'm not going to define it too much this morning. I'm going to mostly focus on transubstantiation, Jesse. But I, I do want you to understand that both of those are variations of Roman Catholic views. You guys follow me on that? Transubstantiation, consubstantiation. What does that mean? The transubstantiation means the transformation of the substance. What's the substance? It's the stuff. Okay, it's the essence, right? You guys follow me on that? They're saying, what's the stuff of communion? When you go to communion, what do you have? Bread and wine. Bread and wine, okay? It really shouldn't be grape juice, um, uh, but anyway, it generally is, right? <laughs> okay? Bread and wine. Welcome to the United States. It's generally grape juice, all right? Historically, it was always wine, all right? In the Bible, it's wine. Um, we won't get into that discussion this morning. But here's the thing. Whether it's the fruit of the vine, i.e. grape juice, or it's fermented grape juice, i.e. wine, right? Okay. The point is, is that it's generally wine and bread. Okay. The fruit of the vine and bread. Those are the two things you generally have at the Lord's Supper. Everybody agree? And it's, and it's generally unleavened bread. Okay. All right. So a cracker. In our case, <laughs> the way Jason buys them, oyster crackers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would swear I wish you'd stop buying those dudes. All right, so. Well, I always feel like I need to have clam chowder every time we have a <laughs> <laughs> Every time we take it, I'm like, why are we not having clam chowder right now? Okay, all right. So, so yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Exactly. All right, so, because shellfish would... Anyway. All right. Thank God that for the new covenant, we can have shellfish with bacon in it, actually. All right. All right, so, transubstantiation is the idea that these elements, the bread and the wine, these the substance of them transforms. The substance of them, the essence of them changes so that when you take them, they are no longer bread and wine, but the flesh and blood of Christ. In essence, in substance. Now you go, oh, but how come when I was Catholic, it never tasted like flesh or blood, never smelled like flesh or blood, it never felt like flesh or blood, because the Catholics don't believe they, they well, let me restate this. They believe that it changes as to its substance or essence, but not as to its accident. What are its accidents? The accidental properties of something um, are different than the substance of something. So, for example, you are in substance a human being, but your accidental properties are different than the accidental properties of your wife. But you're both humans. Okay? And so they would say things like the accidental properties of the bread and wine. They become the flesh and blood, but they still taste and smell and feel like bread and wine. You guys follow me on that? That's the argue. So they have a substance or substance or essence accidents distinction. Okay, the accidental properties of worship versus the substance of worship. If the substance of worship is to sing, the accidental properties sing. If we, if we really want to get technical, theologically rich and biblically sound music, that's what we ought to be singing, okay? Because we're actually participating in word-based worship, which I'll get into in a week or two. But if that's what we're to sing, if that's the essence of singing, the accidental properties would be, do you have a piano or an organ or a guitar Supporting that singing. You guys follow me on that? Doesn't, or nothing. You understand the difference between essence and accidents there? Okay. All right, so um, the but substance. Still, what's that? But it's still actually blood and flesh. They'll say it's actually blood and flesh. So if you took DNA of it, you would come back with blood. Nope. They would say that that would be an accidental property. All right, they would say you can't. You can't necessarily. Yeah, it's very platonic. Um, yeah. Anyway, so it actually comes from Aquinas, and I've got issues about with with it on a number of levels. But <laughs> it's also necessary if you're going to convince people that you're eating his flesh and his. <laughs> that's right. His blood. That's right. Now, then there's the next view is, okay, so that's transubstantiation. Consubstantiation is a variation of that. It's with the substance, and I don't really want to get into the defining of that, but it, it, it's, it's a variation of it. If you really want to spend time on those, you need to pick up and buy uh, Richard Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R, his book, A Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. You have to be really geeked out to read that book. <laughs> so there, if you do, call 
me, we'll have lunch because I need somebody to talk to about it. <laughs> I'm always like, how oh, come on, the only guy who likes this. Okay, so Dictionary of Greek, Latin and Greek Theological Terms, excellent, excellent resource. Um, I think it's worth having just for a reference when you're reading a systematic theology and you come across a theological term and you want to know what it means, they're generally Latin or Greek theological terms, so I need to look it up. And Muller gives you great definitions, so it's a great reference. But if anybody just wants to read that book, like if everybody's like, man, I want to read through that and understand it, will you meet with me and have lunch and read through it and understand it? You just don't know how much you would excite my heart, just let me know. Okay? It's a dictionary that you're going to be reading through. Fantastic. All right? All right. So, just, all right, so, all right, transubstantiation. Real presence is the Lutheran view. So that's the Roman Catholic view. The Lutheran view is real presence. All right? They, they would say, we believe in real presence. What does that mean? Okay? If you go to the Catholic view, when they say transubstantiation, what they are saying is that the body and blood are locally present. You guys know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the presence of something. Something is locally present. They're saying, when you take the Lord's Supper, you can draw a circle around the bread and the wine. If you put it right here, and you do a circle around the bread and the wine, you can say, Christ's physical body is really present locally right here. I can define where it is. Like I can define where Adam Abel's body is right there. Christ's physical body is right here. I can draw a circle around it. It's locally present. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Now, Adam is, I can draw a circle around Adam. Adam is locally present right there. His body is. Now, if it comes to Adam's soul, give me a few minutes and I'll try to wrap up. Okay. And then we'll go to, we'll come back to finishing the Lord's Supper next week. If I want to come to Adam's soul, I cannot draw a circle around Adam's body and say, there's Adam's soul. Adam's soul does not have local presence. Adam's soul is what they would call illocally present. What do they mean by illocal presence? He, Adam's soul, the stuff, the essence of his soul, is not physical. You can't say, well, my soul is contained within the, my body in the sense that, that if I draw a circle around my body, there's my soul, because your soul is spiritual stuff. Spiritual stuff does not have extension in time or space. You guys follow me on that? Your spiritual stuff, your soul, does not take up any actual physical space. You guys follow me on that? Where the stuff of your physical body does. Got me? So that's the difference between local and illocal presence. When you get to Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, they say Christ's physical body is locally present right here. Okay? When you get to the Lutheran view of communion, they would say Christ's physical body, all this, his physical body is illocally present right here. Okay? He's really present according to his humanity at the Lord's table or at communion, but he's present illocally. You can't draw a circle around the elements and say, that's Christ's body. But you can say the elements are Christ's body and Christ's blood. You can say that, but you say that illocally 
In other words, like your soul, my soul's here because I'm here. But how is my soul here? It's not here in the same sense that my body's here where I can draw a circle on it because it has extension time and space. You guys follow the difference there? So they would say, the Lutherans say, no, no, when you take the Lord's Supper, Christ is present according to his humanity, but he's present illocally. I can't draw a circle around that and say that's his. I'm not saying that the body, the bread and the wine transform into his flesh and blood like the Catholics say. And therefore, you guys understand what they're saying there? It's because of their Christology. Now, this is important because Lutherans have a different Christology than Calvinists or Presbyterians or Reformed or Baptists. In, in one sense, pretty much every American evangelical is a Calvinist. In the sense Luther meant when he coined the term Calvinist. So you know the term Calvinist was not coined by Arminius. Or the Remonstrants. The term Calvinist was coined by the Lutherans. And they termed the coin Calvinist to talk about the Calvinist view of the deity and humanity of Christ, of their Christology, and therefore the Calvinist view of communion. That's where the word Calvinist comes from. I know when we hear the word Calvinist, we think, oh, this is about Arminianism and Calvinism. No! The word Calvinism historically was a word used by Lutherans to describe those who held to a particular Christology. You guys follow me on that? Okay? And they used it to talk about, well, the, Calvin, the Lutherans believed that when Jesus was resurrected and his body was transformed, that there was a flow of attributes. Now they talk about two kinds of flow of attributes in the concrete or in the abstract. Okay? And they, they call it communicatio idiomatum in abstracto and communicatio idiomatum in concreto. What does that mean? Buy the dictionary of Latin and Greek theological terms and let's go to lunch. Right? But, but they, they, they talk about these two kinds of things. In the concrete is that there's a flow of attributes in the sense that two essences, divine and human, become one person. That's to bring the two, that's to bring the flow of attributes in concrete, in concreto. These two divine, uh, this divine nature and this human nature become one person. But what they would say is there's no flow of attributes in the abstract. In other words, where the Lutherans would say this, the Lutherans would say when the resurrection occurs, to some degree before, but particularly at the resurrection, that there's a flow of attributes so that the humanity of Christ changes. Not just in the sense that it's re he's resurrected and therefore he changes, but it cha the humanity of Christ changes in the sense that now Christ's humanity has ubiquity. In other words, Christ's humanity is omnipresent. It's everywhere present. Christ, we all believe that Jesus is omnipresent as to his divinity. You guys following that? In his divine nature, he's omnipresent. But as to his physical body, we would say his physical body is located at the right hand of the Father. You guys follow me on that? Okay? That's where his physical body is. But he's omnipresent as to his divinity. The Lutherans actually will tell you he's omnipresent as to his humanity because there was a flow of attributes. In the abstract. You guys follow me on this? I know it's a lot of difficult terminology, but you following me? Okay? That Christology, because they believe he's omnipresent as to his humanity, changes the way they see communion. Can you see how that would be? So when you come to the Lord's Supper, they say, well, he's really present there, according to his humanity. Because his humanity is omnipresent. 
but he's specially present according to his humanity there. You guys follow that? Okay? So they would say, they talk about his illocal presence. In other words, his repletive presence, which would be his omnipresence, is always out there, but his but he is illocally present at the Lord's table because he specially manifests his presence at the Lord's table. Even in his humanity. You guys follow me on that? Okay. That's the Lutheran perspective. It's called real presence. Calvin's perspective, and some Baptists, like myself, okay, perspective is that Christ is specially present at the Lord's Supper, but only according to his divinity, not his humanity. Because I don't believe in this flow, flow of attributes in the abstract. I do not believe that what happened is Jesus' body was became omnipresent, the resurrection, okay? I believe he's always been omnipresent according to his divinity, but not according to his humanity. You guys follow the distinction there? Okay? So I follow Calvin, um, which, is, which is what's called an Antiochene Christology as opposed to an Alexandrian Christology, which I don't have time to unwrap, but these are the two different Christologies that Luther versus Calvin followed. Um, most Baptists, most Evangelicals, have a Calvinist Christology. So in actuality... Almost all American evangelicals are Calvinists and don't know it, okay? <laughs> At least in one sense. You guys follow me on that? Okay? In probably the most important sense, what do you believe about Jesus? All right? Um, so I believe that what's called real presence, like the Lutherans say real presence, I would call it real presence, but I call it spiritual real presence. In other words, he's really present in a special way, according to his divinity at the Lord's Supper. It, God, Christ is everywhere present according to his divinity, but he's specially present at the Lord's Supper. I'm going to defend that, not this Sunday, but next Sunday in, in my uh, worship service. I will defend it to some degree next Friday for you guys um, here, okay, um, as well. So... That, that's what I would hold to. That's why the London Baptists held to that in chapter 14. They would say that the Lord's Supper and baptism actually have some communication of the grace of God, sanctifying grace of God, to help you grow. You guys follow that? Presbyterians agree with that because they'd say there's something particularly special about baptism and the Lord's Supper, just like there's something particularly special about the preaching of the word and prayer, that all of these things are means by which you grow. Which incidentally is why I don't take the Lord's Supper or offer the Lord's Supper to our congregation only once a quarter or once a month for the same reason I don't only preach the word once a quarter or once a month or lead our church in prayer once a quarter or once a month. Because I believe the Lord's Supper actually is a means that Christ has instituted for his church for their spiritual growth. And so I believe that it would actually be pastoral injustice on my part to rob my people of a means of grace akin to robbing them of preaching the word and prayer. Okay. That has huge consequence I want to talk about next week. Alright. Um, I'm not saying pastors who only offer communion once a month are in sin. But I am saying I believe they're in error. Okay. 
and, and, and there is a distinction there. All right, so Zwingli held the fourth view. Zwingli is what's called the symbolic view. The symbolic view is held by most people in America, which is that the Lord's Supper is just a memory. That's all it is. It's a memory. It's, it's memorial. There's no sacramental presence of Christ. It's just the memorial. We just remember. And by the way, it is a memorial. I would never say it's less than a memorial. I would just say it's more than a memory. You follow? And that's why I like the subtitle of this book, More Than a Memory, right? In other words, it's not just, this is written by Baptists, by the way. It's not just a memory. It's more than that. But it is at least that. The problem is, is that a lot of people don't understand that, and so they think it's just a memory. Which, by the way, which is why I think for most people, excommunication really is inconsequential and who cares? They people ex self-excommunicate. Right? Well, I'm not going to be a part of a local church because, uh, and, and, and it doesn't really matter if I'm excommunicated because what am I giving up? The Lord's Supper. And what's that? It's just a memory. I can remember the cross without having to take that with a group of people. Okay? You can. That's a true statement. You can remember the cross and the resurrection without taking the Lord's Supper. You can remember it without that. Um, and it's useful for a memory. That's largely what I'm focusing on this Sunday when I preach on the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper as memorial. And it's usefulness there. Next Sunday I'm going to preach the Lord's Supper as what it currently, presently applies. It's spiritual benefit to believers presently. Christ's special communion with us by his spirit at the Lord's Supper. And the third week I'm preaching on what it pictures looking forward, the promise of the return of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb. So those are the three ways I'm breaking that down. Next week, though, I'm going to get into uh, this with you guys is um, why do I hold to Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper? Because I do. Why do I hold to the view that it's not just or what you'd call the London Baptist Confession view or Westminster Confession view? That it is a memory, but it's more than a memory. Something more than a memory, but it isn't a sacrament in the sense of sacramentalism, where it does its own power by itself, okay? And it isn't the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, where Christ is locally present and the substance changes, and it isn't the Lutheran view of real presence where Christ's humanity has illocal presence because, you know, of it being transformed by, you could follow me on that, and so is humanity especially present, okay? You guys understand? That's the view I take. So next week I want to defend that view because it's one thing to say I take it and to give you all the logic and sort of theological terms. Another thing to defend it. Why is Wingley wrong? Most of you need to hear why Zwingli's wrong, not why the Roman Catholics are wrong because most of you have not been in Roman Catholic churches. Okay, most Some of you have been, but most of you come out of denominational situations or non-denominational situations or Baptist situations in which all we talk about is the memory, the symbol. And that's not bad that we talk about that. It's just not enough that we talk about that. You guys follow me on that? Okay? It's a good thing we do. It's just not quite enough. And so, what else does the Bible say? Can I prove it? It's one thing to assert it. Because Jesus does say, do this in remembrance of me. That's clear. We know it's a memory. Can I prove it's more than that? that that's the real question. That's what I hope to do next Friday. Alright? And then we'll move in, hopefully, from there into just the concept of what is... What does word-centered worship in the church look like, the whole worship service? 
Right, what does the worship of the church look like? All right. Any questions on that? Okay, so now you're like, can you prove that? I think I can. We'll see. All right. You might be convinced you might not. All right. Invite Randy Martin. Well, on, the, on, the, on this, we agree. No disagreement between a Presbyterian and a Baptist on this. If, you mean by, if I mean by Baptist, what are the original particular Baptists coming out of London, the Southern, original Southern Baptist view, etc.? I mean by that, those groups, there's no, really no disagreement on this. Um, if you look at what's going around most of the places in America, most of what's triumphed in America is Zwinglianism, which is held by Zwingli, which is just, it's just pure memorial and that's it. That's why we don't do it very much. That's why we don't take it that seriously. Um, honestly, if you ask me at the end of the day, that's why it's undermined as, a, um, as a, an ordinance, a command that Christ gave the church and a sacrament something set apart for special use for the building up of the body. The reason it's undermined in that way is because of an overreaction, in my opinion, to Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism, potentially, and Anglicanism, if you will, um, that sort of state churches, right? An overreaction to them and an underappreciation of, of how important the Lord's Supper is to the life of the believer. Because I would tell you that if you're not taking the Lord's Supper weekly, you're actually having withheld from you sanctifying grace that Christ wants to give you and these orders that you take, you participate in. Now regularly, we can argue about whether that's weekly or monthly or whatever, but regularly, you follow me on that? Okay. I argue it's, it's weekly or on the Lord's day the Lord's Supper is taken on the Lord's Day because I, I think that's the biblical pattern. With that said, I can't show you an express verse that says they took this on every Sunday and you're commanded to do the same. Okay, What, what, I, what I'm going to do by implication is that it was the regular pattern that they did when they gathered together to worship and that because of the nature of it, what it communicates to the believer, it's important that we continue to do so. By the way, the first five centuries of the church, they took it weekly. That's undisputed. The Didache, chapter 14. You guys ever read the Didache? Go look up the Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Didache, what is that? The teaching. Why does that matter? That was the church manual used in the first several centuries of the church. It's used by the followers of the apostles as their church manual. Okay, that's what they used. It almost made the New Testament. Didn't, for very good reasons, I think. But it was one of the books on the list of possible books for the New Testament. Okay, It's an incredibly important document historically if you want to understand the practices of the church in the second century. I'm talking about the practices of the guys who were discipled by Paul and John and Peter. Keep that in mind. Okay. What's that? Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. The Didache. Look it up. Chapter 14. Read it. It says very clearly they took the Lord's Supper in the church every week. Every Lord's Day. Which, by the way, they called Sunday the Lord's Day. Just incidentally. They called it the New Sabbath. Sunday. They called it the practice of the church to participate in the Sabbath. On the Lord's Day, that's Sunday, first day of the week, every week, and they practice the Lord's Supper then. 
the followers of John and Peter and Paul, the guys trained by them, those pastors, they, they use the Didache as their manual. So you might want to pay some attention to it, not because it has authority over Scripture. It does not. It's subservient to Scripture. But it's very helpful to us to understand how these men understood Scripture. You follow me? All right, so subservient to Scripture, doesn't have its own authority, independent of Scripture, only in as much as it helps us understand how they understood Scripture. You follow me on that? Look it up. Read it. It's fascinating. It's actually a fascinating book to read. They also didn't baptize um, ever in stagnant pools of water. That was one of their things. They only baptized in rivers or it, it, by, but that was did okay if it was at all possible because they believed it needed to be living water, not stagnant dead water because of what it pictured. Now they didn't say it had more power than they just thought that was a more appropriate picture. Ninety-nine cents on Kindle. Ninety-nine cents on Kindle did okay. Yeah, you, I'm sure you can find it online for free too because old books they don't have any copyright copyright. Don't waste ninety-nine cents. If they're over hundred years old, they don't have. <laughs> incidentally, if they're under, over hundred years old, they have no copyright pro, uh, protections. You can you generally find them online at that point. CCL Christian Classics Ethereal Library org. They're going to probably carry the did okay for free. You can read it there. But if you want it on your own device, you can get it for ninety-nine cents on Kindle, I suppose. Monergism might carry it for free. I don't know. Worth reading, chapter 14, they, cut, they did it every week. That's why I, I think that's a good practice. And I'll defend why next week. Any questions? Am I help, helping you or yes. confusing you? Or what, what's this doing? Is it helpful, confusing? Clarity. Turn on the fire hose. <laughs> Turn on the fire hose and just kind of just blew you out of the room. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, you do that sometimes. Yeah, all right. Okay. Uh, we'll get into it more next week. If you think of a bunch of questions this week because they sort of blew you out, that's fine. Think about them for next week. Because I want to defend this view of the Lord's Supper from the Scriptures next week. And then I want you to be able to um, ask questions. So if you think of a bunch this week, feel free to write them down. Um, if you just are super nerdy and you want to read that dictionary with me, let me know. <laughs> Always looking for readers of that kind of stuff. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody likes that kind of stuff. If you read it, it's very technical and difficult, um, but it will make you a superb theologian. Not even your Presbyterian friends? No. I'm, <laughs> I might be able to find some. They don't live in town. Yeah. He's, he's a lone reed. <laughs> a lone reed. I'm not John the Baptist, but yeah, I, I, am, I am lonely when it comes to nerdy theological terminology. Alright, so, um, it, it will make you a better theologian and or philosopher if you're interested, let me know. Teach Greek and I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. It's, these Greek theological terms are more built on classical Greek and not Koine Greek, but um, I may do a Greek class next year. Um, or a Latin class, I haven't decided. So, I'm thinking about that. Alright, let me, uh, not for you guys, unless you want to take it. I'm actually talking about for homeschool kids, because their parents are, are, are want them to be as geeked out as possible. So, <laughs> yeah, all, all right, they want, they want them to have all the things that, that their parents have been too dumbed down by the public education system to know, um, unfortunately. All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for this morning and just the opportunity to talk about um, what, what's been happening in the history of the church how the church is viewed, baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
how they've seen the witness of Scripture with regard to that. We pray, Father, that we would see these faithful men who come before us, not as, not as authorities over Scripture, but as men who help us understand how, how the church over the years has seen the Bible, that we would be constantly thankful that your Spirit is not just has not just waited for us to come around to finally understand the Bible, but that he's constantly been giving us men who he has raised up and given us gifts, who you've given us gifts to the church, so that we might more rightly understand your word. That we would be thankful for them rightly, and Father, that we would be constantly, constantly focused in on and paying attention to your word, that your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name. Amen.